our study in the life of uh, Solomon, we come to 1 Kings chapter 12 uh, tonight. Now, one of the things that I, I want us to see as we study this section of Scripture, it's pretty incredible to take a look at and consider a few things. One, it took uh, about 40 years for David to establish the kingdom. David's reign is 40 years, and at the time that David finished and handed it off to Solomon, it was in relative peace. Solomon, because of the relationship that he had with the Lord, remember the scripture tells us the day Solomon was born, that God said he loved the child. God was, God just loved Solomon. There was a, a special thing. In fact, God did something with Solomon he's never done since. He gave him a blank check, right? Everybody remember? He came to Solomon and he said, Ask of me anything, and I'll give it to you. Now, that's pretty wild thing to have the Lord speak to you. And we know Solomon asked that God would give him wisdom to lead his people. And so the Lord said, since you didn't ask for peace and you didn't ask for gold, you didn't ask for money, I'm going to give you all that stuff too. And so Solomon for 40 years brings the nation of Israel to their apex, the height of the kingdom. The height of everything that God really intended for Israel to be. In fact, we see only one and one only example. We, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. As Israel reaches the apex, word of all that God had done in Israel goes to the Queen of Sheba. And she comes to see the marvel that God had done in Israel and to, and to visit with Solomon. And when she does, she goes away a believer. In fact, if you remember, you say, how do you know she's a believer? Because Jesus said she would sit in judgment over the nation of Israel at the time of Christ. Because she believed, having only seen a shadow. And they had the substance of Christ and didn't believe. So, the Queen of Sheba becomes this shining example of, of, of the nation being, being this light. Shining the light of Christ and someone recognizing God working among the nation and and, and being saved. But we also know in the background Solomon was slipping, right? The moment Solomon worked for 20 years. For 20 years he labored on the temple and on his palace. At the end of those 20 years he really should have let the, the indentured force of labor go. But you know when you have like, I think it was over 300,000, 350,000, something like that, laborers. And you got other things you'd like to do. It's just hard to let them go. So he kept them. 20 more years. And they served and they worked and they built the nation. And Solomon the scripture tells us multiplied wise for himself. And they turned his heart away from God. And so Solomon falls so far that he, he begins to worship Ashtoreth. He begins to worship Baal, both Canaanite gods. Uh, if you want to put them in terms of today, it would be uh, power, sex, and money. That's what he was worshiping. As he's worshiping these false gods. And he's, he's not turned his back on the Lord. He's just added all this other stuff to him. He, he's allowing God to be a part of his life. He's not his life. He's, he's got a part. So do all these other things. And Solomon just really... In the final years of his life, just slowly fades away. And we look at the, the books that we have from Solomon, the Proverbs. We look at Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. There's several books 
in Scripture that we have penned by, by Solomon, yet at the end of Solomon's life, he didn't even resemble the child who began. Yeah, he was about 12, probably maybe a little older when he had his meeting with God. Now as, a, as an old man fading, he's come to the place where he, he says, vanity is vanity, all is vanity, everything's empty, nothing happens in life. I've built this kingdom, this kingdom's amazing, all these incredible things, and I will hand it to my son, and it'll be done. Eighty years to build this kingdom between David and Solomon. One day to destroy it. Is that not amazing? That's why it's always easier to build than it is, or I mean always easier to destroy than it is to build. And so they, we're going to see Rehoboam, his son, in chapter 12, come into power, and we're going to see the end of the United Kingdom of Israel. And you're really never going to have one again until Jesus comes back. So, <clears throat> as they, they, Scripture lays out for us in, uh, in verse 41 of chapter 11, let's just look at it. It says, Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all he did, and his wisdom, aren't they written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in, in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Well, chapter 12, we begin the rest of the story for the nation of Israel. As we look at 1 Kings, the rest of 1 Kings is going to deal with uh, uh, roughly 85 years of history. Uh, we're going to see the division of the kingdom. We're going to see... Uh, five kings in the south, eight kings in the north, and uh, a bunch of, of uh, confusion as we go through because we'll be talking about north and south kingdom and understanding which is which. So as we do that, and hopefully as we take a look tonight at how it all comes together, um, we'll be able to nail some of those things down a little bit better for you. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So the whole town is united. They're united and they're going to come together. And as they come together, it says in verse 2, So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt. Now remember Jeroboam. Jeroboam, First Kings tells us, was in charge of the northern workforce. He had a northern workforce and a southern workforce in the nation of Israel. And the guy in charge of the labor, the huge group of people that were building all the stuff for Solomon. His name was Jeroboam. And the Lord came to Jeroboam because remember we saw Solomon's decline and enter into idolatry. And so God came to Jeroboam and he said to Jeroboam, I'm going to give you ten tribes. The prophet, remember, comes to Jeroboam and he tears a piece of cloth into twelve pieces. And he says, pick ten. And he picks ten, and he says, just as you pick ten, the Lord is going to divide the tribes of Israel, and ten will go with you, and you will reign as their king. And God says, only walk according to my statutes, and I'll be with you. 
Well, Solomon heard about it and wants to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam runs to Egypt. When Solomon dies, Jeroboam hears about it and he comes back. He's not so afraid of Rehoboam. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam. J goes north, R goes south. It's alphabetical to help us keep it straight. Isn't God good like that? So Jeroboam comes back, and as he comes back, the whole nation's united. And the whole plate is laid out before Rehoboam. And he's got an opportunity to keep the kingdom united. But you remember one of the things Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes is, I could build this incredible kingdom, and if my son is a fool, it's all for nothing. Well, let's take a look at how Rehoboam does. It says, so they sent and called uh, Jeroboam, and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Now, keep in mind, Jeroboam was ahead of the labor force in the north. The folks in the north, the ten kingdoms north of Judah, are tired of working night and day to build the kingdom of Israel. It's built. There's so much gold in Israel, they don't count it. They don't even keep silver because it's worthless because they have so much gold. So there's no more need for this near slave labor that they have. And so they want a break. 40 years working. They want a day off. They want to be able to go back to their homes and, and do the things that they, that they feel they need to do. So this is what they said in verse 4. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burden, uh, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. Hey, lighten up on all this stuff. The kingdom's built. Let us go. Let us go back home. Let's stop all this, this taxation. Let's stop all this labor that's going on. So he said to them, depart for three days, <clears throat> depart for three days, and then come back and I'll have an answer for you. So the people departed. Now it's important, that one of the, just a side note, as a side note, anytime in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mindset, when you see the phrase three days, understand what they're talking about, because there's a lot of confusion, especially when we talk of the crucifixion and the scripture saying that as, the, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth three days and three nights. It is all Hebrew idiom. Any part of three days equals three days. The same phrase, three days and three nights, is used in Esther, and on the third day, Esther comes before the king. Not after three days. Are you with me? So there's a lot of confusion in regard to the crucifixion on the dates and the times, but it's just like the scripture says, there's no issue if you understand the Hebrew people at all. And you're going to see it right here, the same phrase. He says, after three days, come and talk to me. After three days means on the third day, they're going to come talk to him. Well, let's take a look. So he goes on. <clears throat> Scripture says, And King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father, Solomon, while he still lived. And he said, How would you advise me to answer these people? So they said, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected their advice. Rehoboam is pretty happy to be king. I mean, what's not to like about being king, right? You're, you're the guy in charge. <clears throat> He's so happy about being king that he refuses to humble himself. 
He doesn't have the same spirit in him we see of David. When David is bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, everybody remember the story? He's bringing the ark back. He first, he did it wrong. Uzzah dies. He freaks out a little bit. Oops, I don't know how to do this. He studies the Bible. The Bible tells him how to bring the ark back, and he does it right the second time. When he does it right the second time, he's so filled with the attitude of worship that he takes off all his kingly garments, his crown, his regal robes, and he goes all the way down to the priest's ephod, which is basically the way of saying his, his uh, undergarments. It's one piece. It's like a, a long night shirt with shorts underneath. It's a very humble dress. It's not the kind of dress a king would be in public. And he danced before the Lord, not before the people. He danced before the Lord. His heart was, this is his service to God. And you remember when they bring the ark back, somebody's mad at him. You remember his, his wife, Michael, who he had went and taken away from another husband, which is a totally different story. We'll, get, we'll do that later. But he, Michael says, well, haven't you made a spectacle of yourself? The king dressing in no regality. You look just like a common poor person. He humbled himself. The Bible says because of Michael's attitude, she was barren the rest of her life. She never had kids because of her attitude. David was willing to be humbled before God. The advisors come to Rehoboam and they say, serve the people. We lose sight of the whole concept of what the ruler is to do. We think somehow the ruler is supposed to rule over But in Genesis chapter 10, the government is designed for the government to protect the people, that the government serves the people. That's how it's supposed to be. It's how it's supposed to be set up. But Rehoboam doesn't get it. So Rehoboam rejects their advice. He says, oh, that can't be. I'm not going to serve the people. No, I'm not going to serve the people. Come on. They're here to serve me. They exist to make my life easier. Well, sometimes that's how government gets, doesn't it? Sometimes that's the attitude that can take place. But look, what scripture tells us. It says then, he rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. So he goes to the young guys and he says, what do you guys think about this? What do you think? Now, think about how young people look at the world. Young people always look at the world like there's a a cause, a, a, a battle to fight, a A cause to get behind. And I love that. And I think that's important and vital. And if a church is going to remain in a place where it is relevant in our day, it's got to have those things. There's got to be a cause. Well, we have the greatest cause of all. We have the cause of Christ. And we can't ever lose sight of that. Ever. The the morning after, we're still called to go make disciples of all men. Aren't we? that change with the election? No. Who cares? I did my part. I, I, <coughs> I voted as well as I could according to the Bible. And some of those things flew and some of those things didn't. All right. I did my part. But today my job's the same. I don't matter who the man is. My job is to make disciples of all men. To take the love of Jesus Christ to the world. That job hasn't ceased 
There has to be a cause. There has to be a purpose. We're not just here to come to church and sing songs and read out of a Bible and whoop, that was it. No, there's a purpose for us to fulfill. And we need to be about that purpose. Only one commission that Jesus gave, isn't there? He didn't give 50. He gave one. That's because we get confused if you give us more than one thing to do. He gives us one. Go. Tell. And that's still our job today. Well, he goes to the young people. And the young people around Rehoboam, they want a cause. But they are also young people who have risen up in affluence. And they've got everything. And, and so their attitude is the same as Rehoboam's. The people exist to serve me. To serve us. So, that's the advice they give Rehoboam. Look what they say to him. He said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer the people who have spoken, uh, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us? So the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, well, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you will say, my little finger will be thicker than my father's waist. Now, I'm assuming that's an idiom in those days that says, you haven't seen nothing yet. You think it was rough under my dad? This attitude that Rehoboam takes. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, I will chastise you with scourges. What's the best way to divide a nation? <laughs> <clears throat> you've taxed the people to death, just lay it on them a little thicker and see what happens. So, that's what he's going to do. It says, now look at verse 12, important. That concept, remember I told you about the three days. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam, what's it say? The third day. It fits within Hebrew idiom. Just because it doesn't fit in Western mindset, doesn't matter. It's an idiom. Three days and three nights does not mean three 24-hour periods. If you want to try to make it work, knock yourself out. I'm just letting you know that's not the Hebrew mindset. And the book came to us through the Hebrew mindset, not the Western one. So, just a little thing for your trivia. Uh, as the king directed, saying, come back to me the third day. So the king answered the people, roughly, and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. Saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. Rehoboam chose slogans over wisdom. And he chose machismo over being a servant. And that is not the way we have learned Christ. That's not who Jesus was. John chapter 13, who was Jesus? He's the one who washed the disciples' feet, right? He's the one who washed Judas's feet, the one who Jesus knew would betray him, yet he still washed his feet. He still reached out to him. He still loved him, just like he loved the other disciples all the way through. He still extended to him all the blessing. Everything that occurred in their life that was a, a good thing as a result of being with Christ for three years, he gave to Judas knowing the whole time he was going to betray him. That's a heart of service. What did Jesus say? What you've seen me do here today, John 13, you go do. He said, a servant's not greater than his master. We want to take that attitude, that attitude of service. 
Not that attitude for what can be done for us or to us or through us. And what's happening in the world is irrelevant to that call. That call means where to go. We got to be those people who are filling the gap for Jesus Christ in a world that is an utter rejection of him. We still got to stand in the gap. We still got to serve them. We still got to love them, the ones that spit in your face. We still got to reach out to them, the ones that slap your hands away. Last I checked, none of us have been thrown on a cross yet. Yet Christ loved those who put him on the cross. He said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so when we come to Acts chapter 7 and we see the church in its infancy around Stephen, as Stephen gives witness to who Jesus Christ is to the Sanhedrin, when they, the Sanhedrin, who know what they're doing, are killing Stephen, you remember what he says? Forgive them. Why? They don't know what they're doing. Who's that sound like? Jesus. When, when we fall under persecution and tribulation and we go through hard times, who do we sound like? That's what we want to do. We want to sound like him. When Judas was going through that and he saw Mary give some extravagant worship to Jesus, you know what he said? Why are you doing that? That was Judas's attitude. Jesus' attitude was utterly different. The first words we have recorded of Judas is why. Why? But... We see over and over and over again the heart of Jesus reaching out. The heart of Rehoboam wants the people to serve him. We lose sight of that sometimes. Sometimes in churches we lose sight of that. I've been places, I couldn't believe I actually was part of a a praise band that traveled around for a while. And we went to a a, a church and was in 29 Palms. First time I ever had an opportunity to, and I, I don't know how to do this politically correct, so I'm just going to do it. Lame, but this church is a black Southern Baptist church, and we're doing worship for them. I'm like, oh, whoo, man, this is going to be fun. So we go in, and and we, but we get there and we sit up, and all that's cool, and and guys are helping us out, and it doesn't seem weird. But as we're going in, there's this one parking place right by the front door, and I didn't think anything of it. Well, pretty soon this this car pulls up in it, and the pastor shows when he shows up. There's like four guys out of the church that are right there when his door opens. They're taking his bags. They're taking his stuff. They're, they're you know, doing all this to, to, to get him into the church. And it wasn't, it'd be fine. That, that's awesome for someone to have a relationship where they love their pastor so much that that's what they want to do. But it wasn't like that. It was, it was this weird expected deal. Like, I'm here and I expect you to exist for me and that's not how it is I exist for you the, the word pastor means servant or slave not some exalted guy who should put a fancy title before his name so that people bow down in, in reverence last I checked every pastor was just as rotten a sinner as every person in the seat so they had this attitude, this, and this is the attitude that Rehoboam has. That you guys exist, <coughs> you guys exist to do this for me. And it destroys everything that his father and grandfather had built. 
one day. He, he gives these slogans and this macho he doesn't want to serve. So the king did not listen to the people. For the turn of events was from the Lord. Whoops. Now wouldn't it be nice if that wasn't there? Wouldn't it be nice if they could just say so? So the king didn't listen to people and he's a knucklehead. And Oh, but the problem is that phrase. Who raises up kings? God. God is still in control, no matter who rules or reigns. The king rejected the people. He wouldn't listen. But listen, the turn of events was from the Lord that he might fulfill his word through the prophets to Jeroboam. God said Jeroboam's going to get ten kingdoms. God said I'm going to divide the kingdom. Listen, here's what you have to understand. At this point, Israel is under judgment. Now. Not they will be if they don't get straight. No, they're under judgment now. That judgment has come. The Lord has chosen. <coughs> the division is going to take place. The point of the division is not to beat the children or to wipe the children out. The point of the division is to cause them to recognize where they're at and to make a choice. And you're going to see that when we look at the division of the two kingdoms. Hopefully you're going to be able to see that. It says in verse 16, Now when all Israel saw that the king would not listen to them, the people answered the king and said, What share do we have in David? Now that phrase, in David, what share do we have in David? Well, David was from the, the tribe of Judah. So David was this, the famous face, if you will, for the tribe of Judah at the time. So when they're referencing Judah, who is the biggest tribe, who has the most people, who has the most power, they reference David. What share do we have in them? He won't listen to us. We have no voice. The, the, the king doesn't hear what we have to say. It, it doesn't matter to him. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. So to your tent, so Israel, go home. Now see to your own house, O David. So the people say to the king, Rehoboam, Hey, we don't, we don't have nothing to do with you. We are going home. You rule yourself. Now, Rehoboam just thinks that's a bunch of words for about two verses. And then he's going to realize they're serious about that. And nothing is going to bring them back together again until after the captivity in Babylon. <coughs> so, Israel departed to their tents. Now look at verse 17. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Now, keep in mind, please understand, there's these fallacies going around that there somehow has been ten lost tribes. There's no such thing as any lost tribes. And the, tribe of, the, the, the nation of Israel was divided by tribes. But do you really think everybody who was living in L.A. was all of the tribe of Benjamin? And everybody who was living in San Bernardino was all some other tribe? Everybody who moved to Twin Falls, they were all the tribe of, of Levi. And everybody who was out in Boise was a part of some other tribe. They have the whole land. People are going wherever they want to go. They started in one area. It says in this phrase, Rehoboam ruled over all of Israel. That means all 12 tribes who resided where? In Judah. So in the northern and southern kingdom, you have representatives of all 12 tribes. 
what you're going to see is that all the tribes in the north are those who have rejected the Lord and have no relationship with Him. And all the people who dwell in the tribes in the south are those who want to follow and have a relationship with God. And that's how the people divide. You have representative of 12... There's people that lived in Judah who didn't want to have nothing to do with God, who went north. There's people north who were up north saying, what are you guys doing? You're worshiping all these false gods. They went south. So we have representatives of all. And I think that's what this verse is laying out for us. That he reigned over all the children of Israel that dwelt in the cities of Judah. Now, King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue. Now, Adoram is the head guy. Adoram is Jeroboam's boss when they were part of that labor force. Are you guys with me? So Jeroboam's the, guy, the head of the north group. Then you had a guy in charge of the south group. And then you had a guy over it all. The guy over it all is Adoram. And he's going up to Jeroboam to say, Hey, we got work to do. You haven't been showing up to work. What's going on? The king's calling. You know what I'm saying? He's going up there to establish Rehoboam's rule. Hey, let's get going. So he goes up there, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee to Jerusalem. So now Rehoboam knows the people are serious. They're divided. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Still true. Well, why? Well, who, who's, who's the ruler of the house of David? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Who's the bride of morning star? Who's the king of kings and lord of lords? Until the nation of Israel acknowledges Jesus Christ as their Messiah, listen, according to Hosea, he won't come back. The scriptures tell us in Hosea, when the people recognize me, I will return. Revelation chapter 19 will occur when the nation of Israel, with a voice, looks to God and says, Jesus was our Messiah. And then he comes and he'll save them. That's when it's going to happen. When all of Israel is no longer warring with the house of David. Who's the son of David? It's a title for who? Messiah. It's a title for Jesus Christ. So, this is what we see taking place in the division. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Now, it comes to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and, uh, and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So, in the division, we got Judah... And everybody else up. Now, we can all do math. Can't we all do math? If there's ten northern tribes and one tribe south, how many does that equal? Eleven, right? Ten and one is eleven. No matter where you go to school, that's true. Benjamin we're going to see in the southern kingdom as well, but Benjamin is a small group. They're kind of going to be enveloped by Judah. So when they talk about the division, they're always going to talk about the biggest portion. So the northern kingdoms are going to be called Israel. The southern kingdoms are going to be called Judah. According to 1 Chronicles, which, which parallels uh, what we see here in 1 Kings, what we see is all the tribe of Levi who are north, all the priests, 
they all leave and go south. So then you have how many tribes in the south? You got Judah, Benjamin, and who? Levi. That's three. And ten to the north equals... Oops. I thought there were 12 tribes of Israel. Oh, actually there's 13. Levi doesn't count because they have no inheritance in the land. They're the priests. So that's why no matter how many times it's listed, there will always be 12 in the list. And sometimes the thing you can understand about what God's saying in the list, you know, sometimes we want to read those lists and just go on and say, oh, why do I have to read the list? I've heard this list a hundred times. And you might all of a sudden realize when you go through that list, the tribe of Dan's not here and the tribe of Levi is. Or, or something has been changed. The tribe of, of uh, Joseph is divided into Ephraim and Manasseh. And now there's 14. What's going on? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's a reason behind it all. You just got to want to dig a little deeper and see why. There's the, the Bible that you hold is living and powerful, and it's never telling you something that doesn't apply to you right now. Ever. But you have to be willing to read it with open eyes and see what's going on. Why? Who's left out? Why? Why are they left out? What's going on? Does the Word tell us? Take a look. And God's word will lay those things out for you if you study. So I encourage you to do so. Wow. In verse 21 it says, When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So Rehoboam's mad. Wouldn't you expect that to be? Why, why wasn't there a civil war? Well, he's mad. He comes back. He puts his army together. He gets his army going. And God sends the prophet. And this is how God is going to speak to his kings from now on. He's going to send a man of God to them. So that's what the scripture says. He's building this army. I want you to listen to verse 24 as it goes on. Well, let's go to 22. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. It's a phrase here in First and Second Kings that's going to identify him as a prophet. Saying, speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people and say, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your brother, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house. What's that next phrase? For this thing is from me. God says to Rehoboam, I'm in charge. Your king, I divided the kingdom, live with it. It's very similar to what Jeremiah the prophet says to the people when they're in chains being led away into slavery. They're wrapped up in chains in a long line. The men are all here. Their wives have been taken from them. They're over there. Who knows if they're even going to end up in the same place. Their children are not with them. Their children are in that line over there. And they're being taken into slavery. There's no guarantee that any of the family is ever going to see anybody within the family again. That's the scene. When Jeremiah hands letters to the people that say... I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. What's God saying? 
these things from me. You trust me and live. You trust me and live. And that's got to always be our attitude, no matter what's going on. If we're on the East Coast facing the biggest storm in the history of the world, this thing is from me. I, my plans for you are to establish you, to build you, to, 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 to <coughs> give you good things, a future and a hope. Just trust me. It don't always taste good at the time, does it? But it's always for our good and God's glory. No matter what. I don't even have the power on and another storm's coming. It doesn't change the truth of what God's word says. It don't change it. Sometimes God's people are caught in the middle of a land under God's judgment. And the rain falls, how? On the wicked and the good. No matter what. But God's promise still remains. This thing is from me. The people always get the king they deserve. No matter what you do. It doesn't absolve us of our responsibility. It just helps us know who's in control. Not me. Not you. God's on the throne and he knows what he's doing. In the book of Habakkuk, the Lord says to the people, <coughs> when Habakkuk comes to God and actually, <coughs> I steal some of Jason's thunder. He's going to share on it in a couple of weeks. But <coughs> when Habakkuk comes to God, he says, what are you doing, God? You, you're, 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 this is insane. I, I bet some people felt that way last night and still this morning. You know how God responded? God said, I'm doing a work in your day that if I told you, you would not even understand it. So, the just will live by faith. Trust me. That's what God told Habakkuk. And that's what God's telling Rehoboam right now. This is from me. Don't fight against it. Don't start picking in and going crazy. What do we have? What is our job? Is our job to make sure the United States of America is the most fruitful place under the sun? No, that's not the commission Jesus gave us. One commission. Go and tell. Period. Now, every one of us has a job we have to do to live. So did they. Every one of us has something we got to do to make a living. It doesn't change your commission. You do what you got to do, but that's not how you are defined. Either you are defined in Jesus Christ, or you are defined some other way. Just so you know, before I am an American, before I am a Marine, before I am any of those things, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And that takes precedence over it all. I'm here for him. If his call for me is to have to walk through cancer, so be it. I walk through cancer. It's God's call. 
If his call for me is to, to never have to go through any of those things and live a life of relative ease, then so be it. That's his call. I'm here for him. Whatever he has. We have to decide. How are we defined? It's one of the things Jason was faced with, with the concept of this. How am I defined? Am I a plumber? Or am I somebody who wants to serve a king? All of us have to make that call. Whether we ever get called in the full-time ministry or not, (coughs) doesn't matter. How are you defined? Are you a doctor? Are you a lawyer? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? You only get to define yourself one way. What's it going to be? That was Solomon's problem. I'm a king of Israel, the wisest man in the world before. I'm a servant of the Most High God. He added God in, but he wasn't defined by him. How are we going to be defined? This is Rehoboam's <coughs> moment of truth. You know, God says, don't go. Rehoboam could have fought against what the Lord said, right? He could have. But listen to what it says in the last part of verse 24. Therefore, they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. They stopped. They were obedient to what God said. Well, that's important. Rehoboam's a knucklehead. Which one of us isn't? Jeroboam's a knucklehead. Which one of us isn't? It's all a matter of who will they follow? What steps are they going to take? God speaks to both of them. But they take very different paths. Let's take a look. It says, so Jeroboam said in his heart, Oh, well, verse 25, Jeroboam built Shechem and the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. So he, he establishes a military and the economy of the northern kingdom. That's what those, those areas become. His, his capital, the area where he houses his military forces. He sets up his defensive perimeter, if you will. <coughs> and then, in verse 26, it says, that Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom is going to return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they'll kill me and go back to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. God told Jeroboam, I'm going to give you the ten kingdoms. If you follow me, I'll be with you. Jeroboam, sitting in the northern kingdom, says, you know, if the people continue to go to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to stay. God's going to change their heart. He's going to take away desire for rebellion. And they're going to come against me and the kingdom will be united again. All Jeroboam's interested in is power. That's it. He's got the chance to be God's man for the moment. But he chooses, I will be defined by the power I wield. I'm going to be a man of power. So I don't want the people to go back and worship. (coughs) No. (coughs) We don't want them to do that. That would be a terrible thing. So the king asked advice and made two calves of gold and said to the people, It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel. By the way, Bethel means the house of God. 
and he set the other one in Dan. When you go to Israel today, you can still see the place where they set up the golden calf in Dan. You can still check it out. So the northern kingdom wouldn't go down and worship the true God. He set up false gods. He put calves, bulls, actually, bulls, which is a mixture of the Canaanite religion to worship Baal. So he put this idol of Baal there in their midst, and he said, that's not Baal anymore, that's the God of Israel that took you out of Egypt. And so they worship the golden calf. They enter into idolatry. They have eight kings, and not one of them follows the Lord. And they will go into captivity 150 years before Judah because of their rebellion against God. God divided the kingdoms so that they would have an opportunity to make their choice. Solomon made his choice. So God now puts it in the hands of each one of the people. You have two kingdoms. Two paths. Which way are you going to take? Life or death? Which one you want? How will you define yourself, Jeroboam? He defines himself as the maker and creator of a false religious system so that he could control the people. So that he could hold his kingdom together. He didn't trust God. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Not only did he do that, listen, verse 31, he made shrines on the high places. <coughs> Excuse me, made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. So he built up all these other altars, all these other ways. He diluted worship further, not just between these two gods that were the gods Baal that he now calls Jehovah. But then he says, not only that, we're going to set up all these other places of worship. So you don't ever have to leave. You don't ever have to go anywhere. You don't ever have to go to a church, go to a synagogue, or go to a worship service. You worship wherever you're at. Just go to that high place. Go to whatever place. He diluted their worship to control the people. That's why it has been said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Because that's how rulers control people. How did Rome control the Romans? Caesar worship. That's how he did it. Is that ever going to happen again? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> Revelation talks about this little thing called the mark of the beast. You remember where the people have to worship the beast in order to buy or sell or do anything? Well, that's, that's not the first time that's ever happened. Rome did the same thing. You can't buy or sell or be a good citizen of Rome unless you take a pinch of incense, enter into the temple, make a sacrifice, and declare that Caesar is God. The Christians wouldn't do it. That's why six million of them died. That's what the persecution during Rome was all about. <coughs> it will happen again. If you don't think that we are moving headlong into a one world religious system... You are not paying attention to the signs of the times. Where everything is tolerated. Where a person can be of the faith of Islam or a person can be of some type of liberal Christianity and they can all come together and be one big happy family. You don't think it's all going to come together? Then you haven't read your Bible because the Bible says it will. 
They most certainly will. It's called the false prophet who worships the beast. All written about on the page of scripture and you get the benefit of living in a time like no other that can see it beginning. That's an important time, isn't it? Did I change my job? I'm supposed to go out and, and figure out who the beast is. No, what's our job? One job. Go tell. Oh, surely I'm supposed to figure out that beast is Obama. I knew it. <coughs> you know some knucklehead is going to put that in the news sooner or later. Don't you? He's the beast. He's the Antichrist. Oh, my gosh. Is our job to find the Antichrist? One job. What's our one job? Go and tell. That doesn't change no matter what else happens. Go and tell. One job. Are you doing your job? That's the job that the Lord has for us. Well, <coughs> he makes anybody a priest. And then Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month. Oh, this is, a, this is priceless. Jeroboam took the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in the seventh, the 15th day of the 7th month, and he changed it. He just said, that's not the Feast of Tabernacles anymore. Now it's on the 8th month on the 15th day. Why? Because he doesn't want them to go back and worship at the feasts. So he changed the feast days and they're going to celebrate them their own way. Now, as you're listening to all this stuff, I want you to understand why... When we come to places like John chapter 4 and the scriptures and preachers and teachers will say that the Jews would never, ever, ever walk through Samaria. They didn't want to have anything to do with those people. Because this is the foundation of Samaria. The twisted worship mixed up with Judaism. The northern kingdom become the Samaritans also should help us to understand that one day <coughs> in Jesus' travels, he said, I have to go to Samaria. There's this woman hanging out at a well, and I need to share with her the truth. And the Samaritans came in floods of people getting saved and coming to know the truth. Why? Because we have one job. Go. Tell. And we see the disciples doing the same thing. I get ahead of myself. We're not that far in Acts yet. But it's coming. <coughs> so this is what Jeroboam does. He changes the feast days. And they're sacrificing. It says, And at, <coughs> at Bethel he installed priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made. Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. And the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel. And offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Jeroboam faced with the opportunity to follow God, chooses to rebel against God, develop his own religious system, and that becomes the kingdom in the north. Always bad kings. Around this same time, uh, in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 11, it says, at this time, all the Levites and those who wanted to worship the one true God left the northern kingdom and went south. Now the southern kingdom only fares a little better. 
they have eight kings, and a few of them serve the Lord. My favorite one is Josiah. He's coming up, by the way. He's a couple chapters away. But <coughs> Josiah, he, he begins a great revival. Well, as I was studying <coughs> this section of Scripture and considering the current times that we find ourselves in and the things that are happening in the world, the, the things that we're about to see take place. I mean, you guys will live in the time when the sanctity of marriage is overturned and well, that's, that's going to happen and a time in which your tax dollars are going to be paying for abortions not only here but around the world that the Secretary of State for the United States rather than spending time trying to figure out how to get our soldiers out of Libya when Libya is upset is preaching about how important it is for women to have rights in other countries you don't think it's true? Pay attention to the news. She's selling those things rather than doing <clears throat> what she ought to do as Secretary of State. You're all right, sis. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's pretty good. It's not a monster, though, but it still is good. Thank you. <laughs> While I was thinking about all that stuff, I... I don't believe in coincidence. So <clears throat> a lot of events swirling around in my head. I've I got some, some folks I'm trying to help with on some other issues. So I got some books to try to, to encourage them. And so I was reading through those books because I want to read the book before I give a book to somebody. So I'm reading through the book. And I come across this outline for God's judgment taken out of Romans chapter 1. And I thought, wow. Wow. That's where we are. We're under God's judgment right now. Well, you don't think that's true. Just read Romans chapter 1. The beginning of God's judgment in Israel, here, that we've read about, and in the United States or anywhere else, it begins with spiritual blindness. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. A, a choice to not honor God. A choice to say, <coughs> well, didn't we do that as a nation? Well, once upon a time, I don't know for you guys growing up, but for me growing up, we actually talked about Jesus in school. At Christmas time, we tell the story of the birth of Christ. You can't even call it Christmas anymore. It's winter break. Spiritual blindness is the first part. Part one of divine judgment. Romans chapter one. You read about it. I don't have time to go through it all, but Romans 1, 21 and 22. Then the second part of divine judgment goes into idol worship. Oh, come on, Jackie. We don't worship idols today. Really? There's an incredible book called The Two Babylons, written by Reverend Hislop, which, which shows that all false worship found its home and place originally at the Tower of Babel, went into Babylon and spread around the world. And I don't care what names you give the false gods, they all represent the same three things. Money, sex, power. <clears throat> oh. Yeah, those are things we worship today, aren't they? 
Idol worship is the second part of divine judgment. You see that in Romans one twenty three <clears throat> that they exchanged the image of God for four-footed creatures, the things that they could hold up in their own image. The scripture then <coughs> tells us in Romans one twenty four through 27, the third part of divine judgment, sexual sin and perversion. Please note that I did not say homosexuality because it doesn't just talk about that. Sexual sin and perversion is rampant. Not only in the nation, but in the church. And those things ought not to be. But it's part three of divine judgment. It's where the Lord would say, this is from me. (coughs) This turn or change (coughs) in attitude. The fourth part of divine judgment. Disease, pestilence. Pestilence. Oops. We have this little thing floating around. I don't know if you guys are aware of it. It's called AIDS. Yeah. It's going to kill so many people in Africa, you can't even begin to fathom it. And the number one person with AIDS in Africa is not homosexual. They're just normal people. Well, they're not normal. They're normal sinners, I guess. That is normal. So, yeah, they're normal people. <clears throat> the fourth part of God's judgment in a nation is those diseases. Romans one twenty seven. He will give them what is due for their sin. <clears throat> and then, part five. In Romans one twenty eight through 32... Satanic defiance, an open defiance against God. I had a unique opportunity sitting in McDonald's to see that happen. Well, I don't know if you guys got the chance, but the Democratic National Convention, by the way, voted to remove from their platform all references to God, to Jerusalem, and to Israel. Then, somewhere down the line, somebody said, well, that might have been a little too harsh. We need to put it back. So they had a guy come out and vote three times whether or not they could put it back. God and Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. You want to hear it? Click on YouTube. You can hear it yourself. And you will hear the people when he says, for the yeas or the nays, shouting, no. Fifth part of judgment is that defiance like Satan had I'm not serving you not following you (coughs) not going to be a part of that at all so we find ourselves in a place where we live in a country under judgment it's okay. In case you didn't know, all the world falls under God's judgment. If you haven't been paying attention, there's no place to go. 
where you're not going to have it. We enjoyed the blessing of God for a period of time when we, like the nation of Israel under David and Solomon, followed the Lord. And they enjoyed a time of prosperity, and they enjoyed peace, and they enjoyed all those things. But the time came when the people said, we don't want God in our life anymore. And the nation divided. Hey, I don't know what the future holds. I'm not afraid of it. Because I serve the King of King and the Lord of Lords. I know what that future holds. I will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Period. Whatever happens, happens. That's not my job. I only have one. I don't have to worry about all that stuff. I don't have to. What about my kids? Don't you realize God loves your kids more than you do? Do you really think your love is more intense for them than God's? Last I checked, he died on a cross for them. So they could spend eternity with him. God says to us, his people, trust me. I'm doing a work in your day that you can't even imagine. If I showed it to you, you wouldn't even get it. Just live by faith. Trust me. And do your job. One job. Not a hard job. Pretty easy. (coughs) To tell people about the one who gives us peace in the midst of the storm. By the way, that peace is our choice, right? I said that God only gave Solomon a blank check. That's not true. God gave you one too. He said, my peace I give to you. He didn't say, my peace I'm going to give to you. He said, my peace I give. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. I'm not going to take it back later. It's yours. The peace that surpasses all understanding is yours. He wrote the check. He handed it to you. You got to cash it. Or you can walk around with the check. It doesn't do you much good. Can't pay your rent with it until you cash it. How do I cash it? I believe it. And I receive it. And I trust him. I do not lean into my own understanding, but in all my ways I acknowledge him, and he will show me what to do next. It's so exciting, because he did. One job. Go and tell. They make Christianity illegal tomorrow. The job won't change. Go and tell. They come put a chain around the door and say, you can't come meet here no more. The job didn't change. It's happened all around the world. It can happen here too. Whether it does or doesn't, doesn't matter. Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled, neither be afraid. You trust in God, you believe in God, believe also in me. What was the hope he offered them in the midst of their broken hearts and life seeming upside down? Do you remember their hope? Jesus said to them, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go... I will come again to bring you unto myself. I'm coming for you to bring you to myself that where I am, that's where you will always be. (coughs) Pretty incredible promise, isn't it? 
So in the meantime, do your job and look for him. We never know when he's going to show up. Could be tonight. Could be tomorrow. Could be any time. Do your job and look for the Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this time we can gather together, Lord, and for the truth of your word. Who knew we could find so much stuff in 1 Kings? But God, your word's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and every single scrap of information we find in the scripture reveals you to us a little more. God, you said it is these that speak of me. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you show up and that you meet us here. And God, you are on the throne and you are the king. And we trust you. No matter what happens. No matter the one we voted for made it or the one we voted for didn't. Doesn't matter. Our job is the same. Father, I pray that you give us the strength to do the job you've called us to do. To recognize we're in the midst of a judgment on our nation. We see it. Romans 1 very clearly describes life in the U.S. <coughs> but God, in that judgment, you bring revival. In that judgment, you pour out grace. In that judgment, you reveal yourself in a mighty way. In that judgment, you have placed us to be your hands and feet, to be your voice, to be those reaching out to a world who doesn't understand what's going on, to be able to say, listen, God loves you. And he wants you to be with him forever. Lord, we just ask that you would send us out to be your emissaries, your ambassadors. To tell this world, wherever we find ourselves, <coughs> there is one king, and Jesus is his name. There is one God, and Jesus is his name. Lord, we pray that you would do your perfect work in us and through us as we seek to honor you in everything we do. And we will give you all the praise and the glory for what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're going to close out with a word of worship. I want to invite you to hang out and worship with us. Afterwards, we'll hang out in the foyer, and or foyer for you fancy people, and see uh, uh, what God will do in our time of fellowship. God bless you. Go in peace. Even though I walk through the valley 
of the shadow of death perfect love cast out fear even on caught in the middle of the storms of this life I won't look back I know you are near I will fear no evil for my God is with me and if my God is with me whom then shall I fear whom then shall I fear oh no never let go through the calm through the storm oh no never let go every high every low oh no never let go lord never let go of me i can see a light that's coming for the heart that holds on a glorious light beyond all compare be an end to these troubles until that day comes. We live to know you here on earth. I will hear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I fear? Whom then shall I fear? Oh no, never let go through the calm, through the storm. Oh no, never let go every high, every low. Oh no, never let go, Lord, never let go of me. Yes, I can see a light that's coming for the heart that holds on. There'll be an end to these troubles until that day comes. Still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. No, never let go of me. Oh, no, never let go through the calm. Yes, I can see a light that's coming for the heart that holds on. There'll be an end to these troubles until that day comes. Still I will praise you. Still I will praise you. Let me go of me. Oh no, never let go through the calm. Storm, oh no, never let go. Every high, every low, oh no, never let go, Lord, never let go of me. No, never let go of me. Never let go of me.
Lord, so often we let go of the one that saved us. Lord, and we trip and fall. Lord, but you never let go of us. Lord, even though we go astray and our heart wanders, Lord, you draw us near again. Lord, we just thank you for that promise. Lord, uh, you are coming again. You are coming to draw us to, to yourself. Lord, go with us as we fellowship. Lord, as we continue this, this work this week, Lord, that you would just uh, send us out, Lord, that we would proclaim your goodness. Lord, equip us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.